Uh, open up your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 10. Uh, one of the things that you are not going to hear me do often is to preach about politics. And uh, many of you say, thanks be to God for that. But uh, this morning, there was something that, uh, as I'm going through Acts chapter 10, starting at 34 and going through uh, 48, there is something that, um, that came up in the last debate. And just so you know, it's going to be a jab on both sides. So I'm not going Republican or Democrat on you, nor Libertarian, or whatever party might be out there you talk to. Um, there was something that came up in closing arguments by both uh, President Obama and Governor Romney um, where President Obama said this, and this is part of a, a longer piece. He said, describing America, he said, America, the only indispensable nation. I don't know if, you ever, if any of you have heard that, but he said, America, the only indispensable nation. Well, Governor Romney said this, America, the hope of the earth. And then just everything inside me just goes, oh. Hearing that from both of their mouths about America being this indispensable nation and America being the hope of the earth. Just inside me, just, it, it gets, my, my blood just boils. Because it has an air of uh, American exceptionalism. We, we are just above and beyond everything. We, we are just the most amazing thing in the whole world. We're, we're indispensable. Without us, you are hopeless. And that, that mentality is just like, it, it's a sick disease that we as Americans have. Now, I, I, I will give this, that America has had a unique founding, that we, we were discovered on these amazing uh, principles they're not necessarily evangelical principles, but they were principles, Christian principles. There was also, we are one of the most deeply Christian nations that, that exists still today. One of, not the only, one of the most deeply Christian nations. We're also fabulously wealthy and powerful. And we often use those, those things for good. We are, our political and our systems enable human creativity and ingenuity that we're able to do things that others are not able to do. And we have a tradition of extending to people outside assistance. Assistance to poor and to those who are oppressed. There's something powerful and beautiful about this nation. But we are not indispensable. And we are not the hope of the earth. As we read this morning, we see a, a radical change. What happens in where he used to view Israel, Israel, and Jews in spe specifically as being indispensable and the hope of the earth, and that idea gets turned upside down. So let's read along with read along with me, starting at verse thirty-four. If you remember, Peter was called by Cornelius to come to his house. Cornelius being a Roman soldier. Um, and 
being an outcast because Jewish people do not mix with uh, Gentiles. But Peter came to Cornelius' home after a sheet. He received a vision from the Lord where the Lord said, take and eat these things. And Peter said, Lord, I would never eat these unclean things. But through a repeated vision, Peter came and went to Cornelius' house. And now he is standing in Cornelius' home with the home packed full of people. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in both the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him uh, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not only to the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, through his name. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then, he asked, then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Exceptionalism. Breaking down walls. Our, our issues of prejudice are changing. We see this even in the life of, of Peter that God is able to, Jesus is still in the process of breaking down walls. He desires to break through and he's doing this in the early church. One of the things that we know that since life and is short and we also know that life is uncertain and eternity is forever, one of the most important questions that one person can ask is, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? How can I know for certain that I am right with God or, or the forces? How can I be sure that I am right? Sadly, even answers to this how am I right with God? If you would uh, even possibly take a poll this morning, if I would take a poll of how can you be right with we might hear some of the same things that we'd hear outside in, in our culture. Well, if I just do enough good, if I just feed the poor, if I just live a nice life, if I'm fair, if I 
show justice, if I donate enough money, these things will make me right, God, because it's, it's about being a right, good, good person. And many people just think if they're sincere, if they're good people, it doesn't really matter what you believe. But you can, sincere, can be, have sincere beliefs that you are swallowing medicine that will get you well. But if it is really poison, your sincerity doesn't really matter. It does matter greatly. Another common belief that is to be saved, we, we just must be really good people. And if we try our best, and if we don't hurt anyone, if we, if we help others, then we can get into heaven. Often faith with Jesus is combined with our good works. If we believe that in Jesus and we do our best, that combination will get us into heaven. But as most of you know, the Bible clearly teaches that we are saved by grace. God's undeserved favor. That is how we are saved. Through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from our own goodness or our own good works. Sometimes, even even those who know and believe that truth personally do not live it out in its practical applications. For example, we may believe that God can save someone who is just a notorious sinner, but surely that person must first clean up their act before they can come to God. But to say that is to deny God's free grace. Peter and John, Peter and the other apostles knew that salvation was by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ, not by their own good works. But practically speaking, here's the practical thing. Up to then, they believed they had to be right with God. They also believed they had to be, to be right with God. A pagan had to become a Jew in the sense of obeying the Jewish laws regarding circumcision and other uh, ceremonial issues. The thought of a Gentile getting saved without com- coming through the door of Judaism, was absolutely foreign to them. If this who is a Gentile wants to be saved, he must first be circumcised. He must also have these ceremon- do all these ceremonial uh, washings and rituals and do all these things to be saved. But as we've seen, God has been breaking down even Peter's prejudices on this matter. And just... They're all being swept away in an instant. This is a radical turning point in God's economy of salvation. Just a radical turning around of everything. For almost 2,000 years since Abraham, salvation had been from the Jews and through the Jews. A Gentile had to become a Jewish proselyte in order to know and to worship God in a way that God ordained. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, all the nations would be blessed. But up to now, the blessings of salvation was basically bottled up in the Jews. But now there was a radical shift that took place. The doors of salvation swung wide open. It doesn't require them to become a Jew first. And it surprised, surprised Peter's traveling companions, and it even Peter intellectually had a hard time wrapping his head around it. 
And it probably even startled him. So this morning, here, here's the truth, that the theme for the morning that we need to get our heads wrapped around. Everyone who believes in Christ receives salvation. Believes in Christ receives salvation. Everyone who believes in Christ. And Peter breaks it down. First, the first point is this. Salvation is not based on national identity, nor is it based on good works. I think it's absolutely clear here. You, Peter just lays it out. He goes, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. It's no longer about Jew and Greek or barbarian. It is no longer about nationality. It is about God's free grace being poured out through Jesus Christ. It's no longer about those things. Nor is it about good works. It's a, this first part of the statement is easy to understand. The second part kind of causes some trouble. The first part, Peter means that God does not show favor to anyone based on a person's nationality. That wasn't always the case, but it is now. God is doing something new, something amazing. And through this vision of the sheep being let down from heaven and all the subsequent events that are coming, Peter had to come to a new radical conclusion that God is not partial to anyone based on nationality. I grew up in a strange subculture. For some of you, maybe you don't understand this strange subculture, but in some way you probably do in other ways. I grew up in a strange subculture called the Dutch subculture. In this strange, twisted community of people, and I apologize to my mom who is listening to this all the way in Iowa on a podcast, but there was a strange thing that the Dutch were God's privileged people. And we did not date people outside of our circle. Period. And even within our Dutch little Christian subculture that we had, which was twisted, there was the Christian Reformed subculture, and then there was the Reformed subculture. Christian Reformed were a little bit more of the purists because we went to Christian school. In that subculture, we were not allowed to date the Reformed subculture because they went to public school and therefore one step away from God. It's a sick thing. But even in some of yours, your, your little circles, out of the church circles, your own little subcultures, it might not be an issue of nationality. It might be an issue of denomination, right? It might be an issue of ethnicity. It might be an issue of color, of skin. Whatever it is, that God is breaking down these little subcultures. It's just saying, no, 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 no. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that is the most important thing. We are breaking down those walls. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. Those things are broken down. The application for us today is that every racial and national background are now on equal footing when it comes to receiving the gospel. You, you even see this in some Christian subcultures where there's interracial marriage is not allowed yet because this barrier still has not been broken down. But Peter is saying, listen, 
God shows no partiality when it comes to salvation. Therefore, the implications are breaking down when it comes to relationships as well. Even in, uh, there's the danger of American missionaries who are being sent out. That they have got to be careful about Americanizing those who are coming into the faith. We've got to realize that those who are coming to faith in in other cultures and in other parts of the world can keep their cultural traditions that do not violate Scripture. They can sing songs that fit to their culture. They don't have to sing out of a hymn book. They don't have to sing American songs. They They don't even have to dress like Americans to come to worship. They can fit in. American missionaries need to be careful not to imply that to become Christian is to become an American. God forbid. But the second part of Peter's statement is more difficult to understand where we see this in in verse 35. At first glance, it it seems to contradict the first part that God doesn't show partiality. It sounds like God is partial to those who fear Him and do what is right. And it's implied that God accepts people based on good character and good works, which goes against salvation by grace alone. We need to interpret it in the context of this chapter. Cornelius was a God-fearing man who did many great deeds. In his introduction, Peter seemed to be courteously acknowledging that these deeds and that much of his evangelism, and much as an evangelist might find something in his audience to compliment as, as a way of building a bridge to them. But we need to understand that although Cornelius was a good man, his goodness did not save him. It wasn't his goodness. And Peter came to explain the way of salvation to him because he still needed to be saved. And we see this in, in chapter 11, verse 14. Cornelius still needed to be saved. He was a good man. He was upright. He gave gifts. He gave tithes. He cared for the poor that were among him. But he still needed to be saved. He needed to receive forgiveness of his sins. The whole point of this narrative is to show how this man came to salvation. Even in our culture today, even in your neighborhoods, even in your family structures, there are a lot of very good moral people, right? Or not very good moral people in your families, in your workplaces that have not received the forgiveness of sin from Jesus Christ who still need to be saved. And I've said this in earlier messages. Whenever a person is seeking God it is because God is working to draw this person closer to him. Cornelius had not yet crossed the line but his fear of God and his good deeds show that God is drawing toward that point but before Peter's sermon is even over he crosses the line and he gets saved God works differently in many people 
He saved some right out of the cesspool of sin and that they're, they're wallowing in it and they weren't even seeking after God. And when he dramatically enters into their lives and rescues them, it is a tremendous, life-changing, black to white kind of color change. My sins were this and now I'm this. Took me out of that lifestyle and now he's put me here. But others like Cornelius, others like Cornelius, God puts the hunger in their hearts to know him. And we've got to be careful that we don't formulas together for how people come to Christ. God works in mysterious ways, in creative ways, in new ways. For some of you, your conversion experience could have been night and you were just stuck in your sin. You were living a lifestyle that was just so far from God. And then, in a flash, in a moment, you heard the good news, responded, received forgiveness, and you were a new creation. Other people, God works over time. I describe it when, when sharing gospel stories. There are some people who have grown up in Christian homes who never really Take this analogy. Never really knew when they understood the color blue. They've always known. I've always known about Jesus Christ. But there came a moment where they accepted Him as their own. God works in mysterious. But here's a lesson that we need to learn from Cornelius. If you want to know God and have your sins forgiven, you're more likely to succeed through reading the Bible, and going to a church that preaches the Bible than going to a local bar. Cornelius sat under the Word of God, received the Word of God. In other words, God uses certain means and ways to save people. If a person keeps on his sinful ways, he is not using the means that God has given to reveal his salvation. By reading God's word and listening to the preaching of the word, the seeking soul will be rewarded as Cornelius was. Second point. Salvation centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look, look, at, look at Peter's sermon. Many people believe this was an abbreviated version of Peter's sermon. But what was his focus for this whole sermon? His, his, his whole sermon is on the work of Jesus Christ. He talks about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He just lays it out. This is who he is. This is who God is. He emphasizes that the risen Lord has commanded them to solemnly them solemnly to testify that he had been appointed by God to be both the judge of the living and the dead. This Jesus that was coming, that came, that died on the cross, man, he is the one who is going to be your judge of both the living and of the dead. And all of Scripture, all of Scripture testifies to it. A couple details about Peter's sermon. First, 
God took the God who took the initiative in sending the gospel. He sent the words to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Men came up from various ways to approach God, please God, but they all fought. Only God could initiate the way of peace by sending His Son. God is the initiator. God is always the one who is sending the gospel through His people. God is the one who is initiating. But also note that Peter states plainly that Jesus is Lord over all. Not only Lord of the Jews, but He is also Lord of the Gentiles. This emphasizes both Jesus' deity, since the Lord is God, but His absolute authority over all things. This ties to the end of His sermon, where He states that God has appointed the risen Jesus to be judge of the living and the dead, everyone who has ever lived will stand trial before Lord Jesus. Everyone. Jew and Gentile. And Jesus will judge every thought and every intent of our heart. Mine and yours. He is Lord over all. Peter even emphasizes how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good deeds and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In his humanity, Jesus was showing how we as humans should live in dependence upon God, doing good to other people, and overcoming Satan's oppression. This shows that the cosmic battle still rages between God and Satan. To preach the gospel is to engage in combat with this evil enemy. But the battle has been won. The battle has been won. But God raised him. They, they, he put him on a tree. They put him on a tree, hanging him hanging him there, and what happened? But God raised him on the third day and made him appear. The battle has been won. It is done. No more do we have to fear. If Jesus had died and remained in the grave, his death would not have sufficed, but God raised him on the third day. He validated his resurrection by making him visible to certain witnesses. And Peter even mentions that he even ate with him. So it wasn't this, this mysterious ghost-like presence. He is alive. So a few applications. People need to understand the basics about the life and ministry of Jesus. People need to know that. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that you talk about? We talked about this in the men's Bible study. Who is this Jesus? And if I would say, give me a description of who is Jesus, what is going to be your, how, how do you describe him? Can you give a, a basic description of his life, his death and his resurrection, who he is? Can you do that? Are you able to describe who is this one? Thinking about the, 
this Jesus who was out on the boat and this huge storm came up and waves were crashing in over the side and they woke Jesus up and he stilled the waves and the wind and immediately what did the disciples say? Who is this one that can calm the wind and the waves? Who is this? Are we able to give the basic facts of who is this Jesus? Because people need to, need to know who he is. Second, we also need to stay focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ when we talk with people. We need to stay focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ when we talk about spiritual things. It's easy to go down our bunny trails, isn't it? Kind of go down here, oh, well, what do you believe about this? You know, maybe we'll get into the discussion of abortion or uh, gender equality, or maybe we want to go down this track, or maybe we want to go down this track, especially in our political system. We need to, or political times right now, we need to stay focused when sharing about Jesus Christ, stay focused on Jesus Christ. Why are these things important? Why? Relating back to Christ and his work, what he has accomplished. His power, his strength, his ability to save. Another thing that we need, we have not actively proclaimed the gospel if we leave out the lordship of Jesus Christ and the fact of his coming judgment. He is Lord over all. And yes, He is the judge. I said once in my classes exams that all roads do lead. All roads do lead to God. The question is, when you get to that one place, will you see Him as judge? or Father. Because He is going to judge you as either a son who has been son or daughter who has been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son or He is going to judge you and cast you out. Do we believe that He is who He says He is? He is Lord over all. Salvation also spreads, this third point, salvation spreads to others through the faithful proclamation of God's appointed witnesses. Quick and easy. Peter repeatedly emphasizes this point. We're witnesses. We're witnesses of all that he did. We saw it. We ate with him. We are witnesses. He repeats that they were witnesses of his resurrection and chosen beforehand by God, he adds that Jesus appointed, ordered them to preach to the people and testify that Jesus was the coming judge. And he adds how all prophets bear witness of Jesus as the one we must believe in and receive the forgiveness of sins. The point for us is that is if God has saved us from our sins, then he has appointed us as witnesses. If God has saved us, he has appointed us as witnesses because we are to give testimony 
about his faithfulness, of where he has taking us fr- taken us from and put us, put us in this kingdom of his son. Point four, salvation comes to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus. I think I've hit this point enough. But the name of Jesus refers to all that he is and all that he did. And even though Cornelius was a good man, he still needed to hear about Jesus Christ and put his trust in him. As Peter proclaimed in 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This means that there is no salvation for good Muslims, good Hindus, good Buddhists, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's salvation for good Americans who live in a supposedly Christian nation apart from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no salvation for good Mormons or good Jehovah's Witnesses as long as they continue to believe in a false Jesus rather than the person of our Lord Jesus Christ who is revealed in the Bible. There is salvation for everyone who believes in him. Believing in the name of Jesus does not refer to a good, general, vague sort of belief, but rather it believes in it is specific and is personal. To believe in Jesus means I believe he is the Lord who gave himself on the cross for my sins. I believe the promise of God that whoever believes in him receives eternal life as a gift, God's gift, and it's not based on any good merit, any good thing that I have done, but it's only God's free gift of grace. To believe in Jesus means that I no longer rely on anything in myself to commend myself to God. There's nothing good about me. Rather, I trust only in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross as my hope for forgiveness of my sins and for eternal life. So Peter's sermon teaches us that salvation is not based on national identity nor on good works. It centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It spreads to others through our faithful proclamation, our faithful sharing of the, God, of the witness as his witnesses. And it comes to everyone who believes. And finally, salvation results in obvious evidence for those who receive it. Peter didn't get to the end of his sermon before everyone who responded. In fact, in recounting it, it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, 15, it says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He was just warming up when God intervened and everyone got saved. I love it. Peter probably had like five points like I did. But just as uh, he was starting to speak, it was evidence. The Holy Spirit was falling on these people. Their hearts were being changed and warmed by the Holy Spirit. This is not something that we, we totally understand in our North American culture. We are very intellectual, aren't we? I want to think through it. I want to process it. I want to see this. I want to da 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 da. He was just warming up, and we can see four evidences. First, they received the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy 
since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in believers at the moment of salvation. And this isn't something that we feel experientially, but rather the fact that God's Word declares it. As a believer's As a believer learns to walk in the Spirit, over time the deeds of our flesh diminish and the fruit of the Spirit will increase, thus making the Spirit's presence evident. You want to know whether you truly are a believer? Are the fruit of the Spirit in you growing? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, Are all those things growing in you? Swelling. We also see another fruit of the Spirit, which some of us, this freaks freaks us out. They spoke in unlearned foreign tongues. Where is Paul going to go on this one? This text doesn't, doesn't teach that speaking in the tongues is the normal experience of those who are saved and those who receive the Holy Spirit. This was a unique situation. God gave this miraculous sign to the Gentiles so that the Jewish Christians would realize that they were on equal footing. What happened in Acts chapter 2 was now happening in the Gentile community. Holy cow. God is alive. Breaking down the walls here. They were also baptized baptized for those who have not received this gift of salvation water baptism is an outward profession of what God has done spiritually and thus it follows salvation I'm looking forward in the next couple weeks I'm I'm guessing in the next month or so my daughter on the way home from uh, church last week gave a credible profession of faith far better than I think most of us could I kept pressing her I, you know because I'm thinking okay as a pastor I gotta, I gotta drill this girl and make sure that she understands she gets it she has been baptized as a child but now she's going to make her credible profession of faith and be welcomed at the Lord's Supper those who have not been baptized and have received the gift of salvation, baptism is a sign, an outward sign of an inward reality. If you have not been baptized yet and have received the gift of salvation, it is the next step. It is the next step in your walk of declaring of what God has done internally. Last thing we see here is that they desired to know more and to grow in their faith. They asked Peter to stay on for a few more days. And the implication is that he did stay on and instruct them in their their new faith. Everyone who is truly saved will desire to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like newborn babies, we will long for the milk of the word that we grow back to salvation if we tasted the goodness of the Lord. A mark of salvation is 
that we desire to grow in the world. Just an, a desire to, yeah, I really want This desire works itself out in the reality of seeking it out. I'm hungering. When you're hungering for something, what do you do? Sit there? Maybe for a little bit. Until the hunger hangs are too much. And then you move towards the food. My hope is as a church that as we have received salvation is that we respond appropriately. We respond with deep, heartfelt gratitude for this good news that was given to us by grace, unmerited. This, this is given to us by grace. Therefore, as a response, one of the things that I do is I share it wherever I go, in appropriate ways, with a certain boldness and passion. That also are people who disciple one another. Because there's a hunger for God's Word to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, there's this hunger. We have to respond marriages, in our family, with our kids, in our community of faith, that we respond in such a way of saying, I, I, I hear that you're hungering for this, so therefore, I want to walk with you. I'm going to stay on like Peter for a few more days, or a few more weeks, or a few more months, or a few more years, and walk with you so that you may grow in this knowledge. It also requires us to be honest that we have hunger pangs and that we've been created for community. And we ask, we ask for those to come alongside us. I want us to be this community of people who shares passionately. Because it's only through sharing the gospel that people do come to salvation. It's not by our good deeds. It's not by us doing this great trick-or-treating thing. That was an amazing event. But people don't come to salvation just because we hand out free candy and have them stick their hand in nasty-looking spaghetti noodles and stuff. People don't come to Jesus Christ because of that. Those might be tools that God is using to bring them along the way. But it requires the faithful sharing of the gospel. I want us to be confident in that gospel. Have our sure footing on that gospel. And respond in worship by sharing that gospel. All God's people say, Thank you.